Welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer. Happy holidays to all our listeners. We've got our last show of the year on tap today. I'm going to be taking the next two weeks off because this podcast release falls on holiday weekends. So I'm going to take the darn time off. But I think we have a good one today with lots of travel news you can use. We're going to start with Heidi Sarna. If you're a longtime Fromer's reader, you know her name because she wrote a number of guidebooks for us. She's also been a a frequent contributor to Fromer's.com, and she writes about cruising. So we're going to be discussing one particular form of cruising with Heidi, and then we're going to move on to our old friend Andrea Sachs from the Washington Post, who is going to be discussing one of the greatest annoyances in air travel today. I'm not talking about small seats. I'm not talking about wailing babies, but I'm talking about something that I bet a lot of you have very recently experienced. Okay, let's start the show. Well, Heidi Sarna, welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. Thank you. Glad to be here. So you've been writing for Fromers for decades, but I think this is the first time we've had you on the show. And I wanted to have you on because you're one of the top cruise experts on the damn planet. You've written for us about that for years. But you have a very specific focus. You used to write, or you you probably still do write about both big ships and small ships, but you much prefer the small ships. Why is that? Right. Um, so I've been on all shapes and sizes over the years, as you said, but over the last 10 or 20, I realized that I preferred usually the small ones. I mean, for some of the obvious reasons, there there are no lines for the most part, which is really nice. No queuing up, no waiting for this, no taking a number. Well, it's that's too- obvious to you. I don't think people would have oh. thought of that who had never been yeah. on a small ship. Sure. Okay. So because a small ship is anywhere from 10 to 20 passage- passengers up to, it's a bit arbitrary, 100, 200, 300, you know, versus the many thousands on the biggest ship. So, so yeah, the the fact that you're not waiting, which is just a really nice part of a vacation, I find. Um, yeah. You know, you get on, you get off, you can talk to the crew, you just everything, shore excursions, dining, eating, getting a, an appointment if there's a masseuse, that sort of thing. Huh. Yeah. And and then also, you know, the, it's more intimate. Of course, you can meet people on big ships, but I find that sometimes you might have met someone that you'll never, you, you can't find them again because the ship's so big. You're like, oh, where's that nice guy or woman? Right, because the uh, ship can be the size of a, a small city sometimes. Right. Yeah, sure. So unless you're texting and you know you can find people that way. But on a small ship, there really is a community that forms quite quickly among the passengers and the crew. Um, I was just on an uncruise cruise in Alaska. That's a small ship line uncruise. They have a fleet of 20 to 80 approximately um, passenger ships. And immediately... It, it's just great. There's like a bond because literally the surroundings are smaller and more intimate and there's fewer people to talk to. And so I, I really like that about small ship cruising, the, the, the intimacy and the community that forms quite quickly. And, and also 
the up close access, the access that you get on a small ship. So whether it's Alaska or Maine, I was just in Costa Rica, so many places, Europe, a small vessel can, of course, get closer to the shoreline in huh. most cases, you know, so you literally are closer to what to what you're there to see, you know, the scenery and the the, the forest or, or whatever. So, you know, instead of having binoculars all the time or maybe pulling into a cargo port, like some big ships have to more of a commercial port and not seeing so much. So, yeah, you, you would definitely see, you see more um, closer mm-hmm. up on, on a small ship. Well, you were saying about the community. I'm in my 50s. So I've always kind of avoided small ships because I figure it's not going to be my community. It's going to be older people. And I've said this, uh, you know, during speeches that that, uh, I've given what I've heard are the perks of going on small ships. And you've you've said some of them. I would add to that uh, that they tend to be more inclusive. Uh, than Mm -hmm. than larger ships are. But uh, my father once came home from a river cruise in Europe and he loved it. He absolutely loved it. He was 80 at the time. He was raving about the food, about the tours. And then he said, and I was the youngest person on the boat. (laughs) And I thought, okay, yeah, that's, that's what I thought it would be. Was he wrong? Am I wrong? Or can younger people do small ship cruises and and enjoy them? Right. No, I mean, I you're right. I can't deny. I'm not going to say it, obviously that it's, there's all twenty somethings on small ship cruises. I think, like you mentioned about your dad, that Europe Europe river cruises, I would say, generally attract an older clientele because it's so darn convenient, and you can see, you know, five, six, seven places, and you know, to unpack once, and et cetera, et cetera. So I would say definitely your your river cruises can skew older, but you know I was on one a year ago through the waterways of Netherlands, the Netherlands and Belgium, and while there were some older people, yes, there were also I'm I'm your age range in our fifties, we're quite active and fit, and we cycled every day or twice a oh, day. Wow. So some of the river cruise lines, for instance, or a lot of them carry bicycles on board. And then a smaller group of the cruise lines have more of a focus on fitness with a, a dedicated fitness person. Um, so so then our community became the people that like to cycle, which hmm. tended to be maybe somewhat younger. So and, and the young cruise I went on in, in September, again, there were some really hardy 75-year-olds, which I admire and I want to be like them, who did the hikes, you know. So I would say it's a self-selection sometimes of huh. fitter people um, that might be older too. But you're, you're right. There's definitely some older people. And yet, you know, I'm not 85 either. So I'm, you know. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, but you wrote another article for us that we just published recently about the many active things that you can do on these river cruises. And what was surprising about the article, not only the list of the of activities, but also the different places you can now river cruise. You can do so in both North Africa and, and the Horn of Africa, right? Yeah, that's that's a newer itinerary or expanding, relatively speaking, expanding. It's not, you know, a huge number of lines that are going there. But yeah, I mentioned that variety cruises. Ama Waterways in 
quasi Europe are going there and going where specifically? I know yeah, they're going so, to Egypt and and where right. else? So so even more right more more small ship lines do Egypt on the Nile. Um, there's many many that go there, Viking and so, so many other ones. But the ones that I reported on recently, their variety cruises is going to West Africa uh, on the Gambia and Senegal rivers of West Africa. So that is quite exotic and different. Um, and basically, you, you see wildlife from the decks of, of the river boats, and often there's a safari added on before or after. So um, you see wildlife from the decks of the of the river boats. Are they? Is it the type of of wildlife you'd see on a safari, like a herd of elephants or giraffes? Uh, yeah, I mean, floating I haven't by. Yeah, because elephants when when they're coming to drink from different waterways, and and even the river boats that are small already would then have their have passengers on smaller skiffs that they carry on board. So then they could go into the places that they know the local guides would take you to the watering hole, you know, that is near the river, et cetera. So yeah, you, you definitely can see some of the big game, from my understanding, from the riverboat or the skiffs that are carried aboard, um, you know, in a part of the world where there are few tourists. So it's really a remote an interesting place that you have to yourself. Absolutely. And you do add on safaris. Are there cultural exchanges done? I mean, do you see much of the culture of Senegal, which is a, a country that's really well known for its its incredible music scene? Yeah, they, they do try to include, right, some cultural experiences going, definitely there'd be some local folk music um, in the evening that you would either they would come on board or often you're on shore somewhere. Yeah. So that's definitely arranged. Like you said, music's so important and the colorful clothing and instruments and food and et cetera. So yeah. And in terms of age, I think that any age could enjoy this, but you know, you you need a degree of fitness obviously to travel so far away and to deal with the heat and that sort of thing. Interesting. And you you just were on a Star Clipper cruise to Costa Rica. Is Star Clipper a tall masted ship? Yes, Star Clippers has been around since the early 90s, and they have three tall ships that are replicas of the fast clippers from the 19th century that the owner, Michael Kraft, really has always loved. So he built, he's a Swedish man, he built these three tall ships. They operate by sail and by engine, so they're hybrids. They're not purely sails, but they really do have all the traditional rigging and the and the cleats and the winches and the sails and every everything that a, that a sailor enjoys seeing. Um, so yeah, I I just went. Uh, we sailed for a week from Panama near Panama City to Costa Rica near. Puta Arenas, but uh-huh. so, so basically the first three ports in Panama were beaches. And the second three in Costa Rica were more um, nat- natural park oriented, seeing we saw sloths and iguanas and several types of monkeys and the beautiful, colorful tropical birds um, during during the ports of call. Oh, that so, sounds cool. Yeah, it was interesting. Yeah, if, if small ships go there, but we didn't run into any other ones the whole time, just mm-hmm. you know, to show you that a lot of small ships really are going places that are not overly touristed with the exception of the Europe rivers, which of course are quite busy. I know that uh, there are indigenous communities in Panama that welcome tourists. Were any excursions to visit them or was it really more just a beachy and nature type trip? Yeah, right. There's a San Blas Islands in some places, like you said, where you you see some of the local 
people. Um, but no, th this one really was beaches. And I didn't quite expect it to be that way, that there wouldn't be any sort of other cultural experiences. But it was, yeah, it was beaches and a national park. So, um, so probably lots of beauty. Of, yeah, it, it, yeah, it was okay. It probably wasn't my favorite, to be honest, of ah. most of cruises I've done. But well, I, you've I, taken I, how many cruises have you taken over the years? Would you say um, over a hundred and twenty? I have to. I check. I keep a list, and I haven't updated it lately. But at least a hundred and twenty over the over the. That's season. incredible. And and just to get back to active cruises, since that's the article you just put up on on Fromers com. So we've discussed cycling. Right. We've discussed hiking a bit. What would be another activity that you'd be able to do on a small ship cruise that that you might not get otherwise, or 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 maybe that you might get on a big cruise, but but you wouldn't expect on a small ship? I mean, the cycling is huge, and the hiking, as as you said, so, some of them carry some small ships have marinas uh, sort of off the back that either unfold or 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 sort of there, so you can do water sports. They carry kayaks, some paddle boards some sailboats. So that's something that is, you know, is not offered on, on a big ship. You, you, sure. You know, there's no rope thrown over the side of a big ship where you can go kayaking or hop into marina. So there's that, that that's companies like Windstar, Island Windjammers, um, Sea Dream. There's quite a few uh, uncruise that carry aboard fleets of kayaks and some and paddle boards and things. In fact, when I was in Alaska in September, a lot of us kayaked quite a bit, and we saw calving glaciers and bears pretty close up. And then there were two women that were on paddle boards, and they're very good at it. These two, in fact, they were about 60 years old, very fit. They were paddle boarding in the chilly waters of near Misty Fjords, and, the, and a huge bear swam like right past their paddle boards, oh, sort wow. of in between our skiff and their paddle boards. But, the, you know, they were in paddle boards. I'm like, whoa, that is... And they remained calm and, you know, everything was fine. But, you know, just to show you that experience could never happen on a big ship. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So what other activities? I guess there's wine tasting. You talked about helicopter tours. Where do those sorts of adventures sure. happen? I mean, I would say that helicopter tours and wine tasting could be experienced on, on big ships. So I wouldn't say they're exclusive to small, to small sure. ships. But, um, but yeah, I mean, wine tasting, you know, on Bordeaux, when you do river cruises in southern France or in the Bordeaux region, wine tasting, of course, would be a big part of it. And then barges, we haven't touched on barges. There's very small six to 12 passenger hotel barges, mostly in France, but in some other European countries. But the ones in France, of course, focus at least one or two afternoons or are spent at vineyards. Um hmm. So yeah, that's something that would not be easy to do in that way on on, on a big ship, and right. yeah, whether you cycle to them or or you just take a walk around a, a vineyard from medieval times, yeah, that's that's a, a great thing to do on a small. Yeah, ship. that's pretty amazing. People who listen to the show know that this past summer I did a self driving barge uh, trip uh, down the Canal du Midi which was a lot of fun, although it was 106 degrees oh, no. uh, for part of the time we we're out there. So that was nuts. So as well as writing for us, you've also started your own website, which is called Quirky Cruise. Tell us about that. Yeah. So over the years, as I 
became more attached to small ship cruising, a colleague and I thought, you know, let's start a website. We didn't really think too much about it first, so I probably wouldn't have done it if I thought too hard. I just, we just did it. We're like, we, we wanted a place where the reviews that we had done and, and some of our travel writer friends had, had written, just where, where, where the reviews and the news could live, you know, a place um, where people could go and access insights about small ship cruising and, and under 300 passengers, we sort of just made that arbitrary cap. And besides the European river river cruises that are more people are more familiar with, there's some more sort of offbeat stuff that people just haven't heard. Like I, I did a canal cruise across Sweden. I mean, that was such an amazing one, of, probably one of my top five or 10. And I know that a lot of people don't know about the Gota Canal. So the Gota Canal system is between stock goes between Stockholm and Gothenburg, east or west, either direction. And it's a wonderful company that the um, Gota Canal Steamship Company. They've been around for a while and their three vessels are historic. The oldest one we were on is from 1874. It was an My old commercial barge. Yeah. So so things like that. And having lived in Singapore for 17 years, I'm now in the US, but uh, I was able to do a lot of Southeast Asia cruising. And again, I knew that a lot of my friends in the US wouldn't have been familiar. So, so Quirky Cruise was a place where we could you know, have these articles that we might have written for other people, even just a place where they could they could live and stay. And, and it, yeah, so we cover more than 90 different small ship companies that we're just familiar with. There's a bunch in, in Alaska, you know, they're for, for with individual reviews for the companies, as well as looking at right. the different itineraries. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And then we have a we, I use freelancers for the that contribute to the site. And we have Ann Kalosh, who's well known in the biz. She does news news roundups when something new happens, you know, Sea Cloud is, is a small ship company with tall ships and they just launched a new one. And, you know, so we, we try to have um, as much news in there too, but um, yeah. Well, many well, congratulations on that. That's you. really exciting. Before we leave that, I'm intrigued by the idea of Southeast Asian cruises. When you go on those, are you usually the only Westerner or is it a mix of people? I mean, what are those cruises like in a nutshell? In a nutshell, I would say their clientele is, there are a lot of um, British people that like to go to Southeast Asia. So I would say on an average cruise, would be at least half British and then maybe a quarter Australian. And then the other quarter would be a mix of North Americans and other people, <laughs> other Europeans, you know, other Asians. But yeah, the, the UK market would be, would be is quite big. In, in, in India River Cruises, I've done quite a few of those. That's another, I should have spoken about that more. Like that's another off the beaten trek. Are you on the Ganges in, in yeah. India? Well, yeah, wow. so Brahmaputra, I'm going on the Hooghly River, which is a tributary of the Ganges. I'm doing that in February. Hmm. There are so many. Um, like and it's such a convenient, safe way to travel around India, which is you know is such a, an amazing place to to visit. Oh yeah, I could I could go to India over and over again yeah, because right. depending on what region you go to, yeah. it's like going to a different country altogether. There sure is, yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, many congratulations once again, and thank you so much, Heidi, for appearing on the Firmer Travel Show. Thank you. Hope to talk to you again soon. Welcome back to the show, Andrea Sachs. Hi, it's great to be back. So, there are a lot of things in uh, 
airplane travel that are hugely annoying. But for me, and this is a new peeve, for me, it's when they tell you that all of the overhead bins are full and then you have to check the darn bag because you're in a late boarding group and I'm always in a late boarding group because I'm a cheapskate and I don't pay that much for my flying. And then you get on the plane and half the bins are empty. Why is this happening more? Well, I agree with you. That is a major pet peeve because, you know, we, we pack, we leave the house thinking I'm going to be nimble. I'm going to pack light. I'm going to have right. everything on me so I can be flexible. Right. And then the gate, gate agent tells you you have to check your bag. What's happening is that I really, there are just so fearful delays. And this is one huh. way to kind of cut down on that and ensure that the plane leaves on time because they're not going to have people puzzling over where to put their bags or if they don't fit, then they have to go back to the jet bridge and get them gate checked. So they're just preemptively striking against us and deciding they're just going to have us check our bags. Well, I thought it was absolutely fascinating in your article. You uncovered why they're so worried about delays. What happens to gate agents if there's a delay? That was news to me as well. Um, a flight attendant that I spoke with, who was with Delta, said that the, the gate agents really feel the brunt of it and they will be penalized for having a delayed flight. It's really their responsibility to get everybody on that plane and off on time. And so they will be reprimanded. And she said it eventually could end up in a firing if it just They get a demerit for each late flight. So they yeah. have a very personal stake in making sure that the boarding process happens as quickly as possible. And we all want the boarding process uh, to happen as quickly as possible, obviously. I mean, is it just my imagination this, that this is happening more frequently? Or is it the fact that there were all of those delayed flights earlier in 2023 and in 2022 that is making flight attendants just more strict about this? No, I mean, I definitely think you are. My flight attendant that I spoke with said that she's been seeing an uptick since summer. And obviously, hmm. it will be better on either destinations that where people check more bags or also low season or shoulder season. So, you know, the busy travel period where there really are full flights, more people are trying to cram, carry on luggage onto the plane. You're going to see it happening more often where they just like lose it, you know, lose it, but huh. they're just like, you know what, I'm just going to, we're going to just come check bags, even if there's empty bins, but it, there definitely is an uptick in it. And hmm. there's really not much we can do until we get on the plane and we see empty bins. And either you can ask the flight attendant if you can retrieve your bag or, you don't know, you know, kind of what the temperament is or what the pulse of the plane is. So it's kind of hard to say whether you should go back. I did go back because I was really upset because there were so <laughs> many empty bins. And I yeah. had things to do and I didn't have time to go to the baggage carousel in right. D.C. And um, one of the people I interviewed, she was she had a connecting flight, had to go through customs. And then she had to retrieve her bag, which she wanted uh, to avoid doing with the carry-on. And they right. made her check her carry-on. So it can so, add a lot, of, a lot of time on the back end. So maybe they're getting the flight out on time. But then as passengers, we're then stuck with some you know, extra chores to do. Well, absolutely. It's a huge waste of time to yeah. have to get your bag from the luggage carousel. That can add 30 to 45 minutes into, in your, to your airport time. But you said in the article that if that you have to ask the flight attendant if you see the empty bins if you can go back and uh, retrieve it is it against carrier rules simply to take that tag off 
and bring it onto the plane because this has happened to me so many times at this point uh, where I've been told that the you know the bins are, are full and they're not uh, that that part of me wants to rebel I I I just want to take the damn thing off when <laughs> nobody's looking uh, can that get me into trouble or is that an unethical thing to do that is such a good question because I do the same. So when I have, and I always carry with a duffel or backpack, never hard roller bag. So like I know mine can mush in and they give me the gate, the bag, the little pink tag or what color, whatever color right. it is. And they tell me to take my bag and leave it at the jet bridge at the end. I never do. I go on the plane and I usually always have found space for it, but sometimes they get a little more aggressive and they actually like watch me leave it. And they so, know you, Andrea. They've seen you do this. <laughs> like this morning when I flew back from Knoxville and they said 25 and it was a 90 seat plane. And I'm like, that's absolutely ridiculous. I just, huh. and so I did go back. I did ask nicely. I always have, you know, that kind voice. I did ask the flight attendant. The flight attendant said, you were absolutely like, go back and get it. It was a gate agent who stopped me. So hmm. I think you need to have everybody on board with you. Be very polite. Know like when to, to surrender and say, okay, I'm not going to get my bag back. I don't think technically you're supposed to like go back off the plane. Right. I think with the permission of the flight attendant, but they did tell me if you do take your, your gate check tag off, make sure you give it to them because they have input all that data. And so it's important for them to know just for weight and balance where the bags are. Oh, oh, that's very interesting. Okay. So is there a method to how they're deciding when the overhead bins are empty? Because if, it, if there is, it's clearly not working. No, it definitely is not. I mean, they try to stay in communication with the flight attendants who have the eyes on the bins and the gate agents who have the eyes on the number of people still waiting at the gate and try and coordinate to like kind of estimate like, okay, when are we really going to run out of it? But sometimes the flight attendants get so busy with people and boarding process that they're, the communication lags a Breaks little bit. Down. And then oh. I think the gate agents make the decision. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, it's a it's a great article as always. Thank you so much, Andrea, for oh, appearing on the Frober Travel Show. And that is it for this week's show. We're buttoning up 2023. I thank you so much for listening for this past year. It's been great sharing these stories and these guests with you. As I always urge you. Please visit us at fromers.com. Today, in particular, Heidi Sarna discussed several of the articles she's written for us there. But frankly, there is more detail in what she said on our site. So we hope that you'll visit us there. Happy New Year to you all. And to those who are traveling, may I wish you a hearty bon voyage. I'll see you next year.
you ever coming home? I 